Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the I-5 Corridor podcast. Tyson Alger here, joined by Christian Capel. He's the Athletics Washington Huskies beat writer. He's been there for, boy, is this this four years now, Christian? Four years. Four years four... and uh, a month and... A month and change. 15 days, I think. Yeah, but this is this is probably, what, like your 10th year overall covering Washington? Let's see. It's my eighth since I started at the Tacoma News Tribune. Um, and I covered it for the student paper in college. Also covered Wazoo for a couple of years. So the was, was covering was covering the upper the upper left corner of the Pac twelve <laughs> experience is, is maybe coming up on a decade. Was what was covering Washington for the school paper like? Because like I always see like the the Daily Emerald kids here in Eugene, and it seems like, especially for somebody that went to school in Montana, where football isn't necessarily uh, has the ability to be on like the front page of ESPN or you know it wasn't a Pac-12 school. It it seems like a really cool gig for those kids to cover a school like that. But you you didn't necessarily go to Washington at a time where there was a ton of success on the football field. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a really fun experience, um, you know, just kind of like learning how to cover a team and and having your work published regularly for the first time and, and just sort of, you know, getting those reps in and getting better. And it, what was, I always say this, like the biggest advantage that sports journalists have, student sports journalists have over student journalists who are trying to cover anything that's not sports is if you're, if you're in a market that has a, you know, a power five football team or an FBS football team, or, you know, like you, you had this experience too in Montana, um, being around professional journalists all the time and like watching them do their job, you know, you go to a press conference, the Seattle times is there the time. The Seattle PI is there. The Tacoma news Tribune's there. The Everett papers there. And so you get to witness firsthand every day, like, Oh, here's how you ask questions or, you know, here's some, you, you, you pick up little like interview tips and you get to read a professional, multiple professionals write about the same things you're writing about every day and see like, okay, I, I saw them ask this question or these series of questions and they got these answers. And now here's how I see they displayed them in their story. And, you know, when, when they're asking the questions, sometimes you're like, what's the, what are they writing about? What's the angle here? And then you see it and you're like, oh, okay. So like you kind of get, you know, you, you get to follow the process all the way through of a bunch of people who have been doing this for a long time and know what they're doing. Um, and I, like, I don't know if you're writing about, you know, student council or have some of those other like news beats at a college newspaper, how often you necessarily get that experience. Who, who was the, the, the alpha on the, the UW beat back then? Oh, it was, it was Bob Condota, Bob Condota. And then, <laughs> He he like the athletic put out its its tiers of uh, college football coaches yesterday, and Nick Saban was by himself in tier one A. Yeah, Condota was the Saban of the the UW for sure. <laughs> I've uh, I've never actually met Bob. And that's not heard. a knock on anybody else who covered him, by the way. Like I, yeah. I read everyone who covered him. I uh, I've never met him, but I've heard from you know people who've worked with him on like the Seahawks beat and stuff like that. That guy's a machine, isn't he? Isn't he? I I don't know that I've ever met anybody who works harder in any industry i mean he just and he not just hours and time but he's also like extremely efficient and he and he works that hard so what he's able to put out has always been pretty prodigious (laughs) 
Uh, well, man, it's uh, it's a, it's August 25th right now. We got football starting here in a week. You are in your first fall of covering the Kalen DeBoer era at Washington. Uh, kind of some interesting parallels, as always, between Oregon and Washington. Uh, Washington's going to have a transfer starting at quarterback this year. First year new court coach. Oregon's likely going to have a transfer starting at quarterback this year. First new year coach. Uh, how's it been for, for, uh, the Huskies since, uh, the coaching changeover and just kind of what, what's the vibe up, uh, up on the lake right now? I think the vibe has changed. That was kind of, that was, that was the word I, I was using early on that like, you know, before they can go prove that they're better than a four and eight football team by playing some games, there are certain things you can do behind the scenes and with recruiting and roster management and and all those sort of things, keeping guys instead of watching them transfer out amid a coaching transition. I think they they played all those right notes, and the the vibe had changed. They had at least corrected that. Yeah, you know, I think as you get closer to the season, all people are always going to be more optimistic and um, getting their hopes up more and more. That's just that's sort of how it goes. But like, I think it's reasonable to expect, you know, a, a, a seven win season somewhere in that range, and not be shocked if it's eight. And, you know, if everything clicks offensively, maybe, maybe, you know, their, their stretch goal is, is higher than that. But um, like, I think if I'll, I'll pick it all out next week, formally, I looked at the schedule, just look, kind of look at the schedule and mulling it over the last few weeks. Like I, I probably see seven and five for them. Yeah. Um, but I, I think anything less than that would be, would be pretty disappointing. What a crazy kind of ye- I guess year for for that program because the the very first guest that we had on the I five corridor was uh, Ryan Leaf last year, who uh, who came on and projected about Washington would go twelve and zero. I think he had them going to the playoff. I remember um, that. And then didn't he say like he was just trying to manifest some some positivity for the Pac twelve though? I don't know that he genuinely thought they were going to go twelve and zero. Yeah, I I have my doubts, but still, it worked out as like a nice. Uh, <laughs> Like week one, wash Montana comes in. Uh, this is an open-ended question, and and obviously we don't have have the time to go like all the way in. But just like, what was like, what's the quickest way of describing like what happened with Jimmy Lake? Like, because like this this was a guy who, as as someone who doesn't you know pay read every Washington story, like coming into last year, like he always seemed like very well regarded and respected, especially amongst people like in the industry. And it just like I haven't seen something go to hell that quickly since probably Mark Helfrich in in twenty sixteen for Oregon. I think that um, he trusted intrinsically his his own instinct and his own vision on all matters, and um, I think he hired the wrong offensive coordinator. Yeah, everything kind of flows out of that, like from a football perspective. The offense, hiring John Donovan after four years, you know, after after things didn't go well for him as OC at Penn State, and then four years as a an assistant um, in the NFL, assistant to the assistant, whatever they they call those roles. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so that I think that that was his first big mistake. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you've had you know, one player talked about it was obvious that the coaching staff didn't really get along. I don't know if that meant that they had different ideas 
about how things should should be structured or different ideas schematically or ideas about how to run a program that they didn't agree with with Jimmy Lake on. Yeah, I think I don't think it helped him that he's a a first time head coach and didn't have anybody else on staff with with head coaching experience or like you know I I went out and saw Jake Dicker at Washington State and um in in the spring and he talked about how his one of his requirements for hiring his offensive coordinator was that he wanted someone who'd been a head coach. And that's a pretty limited pool. People who have head coaching experiences who are now coordinating, um, you know, it's not non-existent obviously, but he's able to hire a sitting head coach, Eric Morris, who's the head coach at incarnate word. And that, you know, he want kind of wanted that expertise and sharing of ideas on his staff and those sort of things. And yeah, I don't know that Jimmy Lake had that, had somebody in house he could kind of, you know, fall back on or right. rely on didn't have any relationship with Chris Peterson anymore. They hadn't spoken. So I think there was a, there was a stubbornness there and there was a, this is how we're going to do it. And this is how I think we should do it. And I'm going to default to that in all cases. I think there was some of that. And then, you know, he, he had the incident on the sideline in the Oregon game. You know, obviously he finishes the season if, if that doesn't happen. So that, yeah. it was, it was a multitude of things. I think the sideline incident, kind of it pulled everything together and it gave the athletic department a chance to take a step back and evaluate, you know, not just investigate that incident, but sort of evaluate everything going on around the program and take the temperature and really decide like, okay, let's figure out this week, whether this is the person we want to ride with long-term. And yeah, I just think that the 360 review that was precipitated by the sideline incident kind of pulled everything together for them and, and pointed to a pretty obvious conclusion. Was was this change in, in firing, um, like how like how was this kind of period viewed by kind of the Washington fan base and and maybe administrators? Like, is this was this viewed as like a we have to absolutely like nail this next hiring? Like, is like is this as like how how important is is the Boar's first season here and and kind of turning the tide, especially as you know realignment hangs over everything right now. It's important that they show that that last year that going four and eight was an aberration. You know, I, I don't I don't know that he's gonna lose anybody this year if they go out and and they're not in the Pac twelve championship game or they don't win the conference championship. I don't think that the reasonable expectations can can go that high. But like I said, I mean if if they play a seven and five, eight and four type of season, I think that will have people believing like, okay, this is largely the same team plus some transfers that this staff went out and got to, to plug some holes. And if that all meshes well together, you can say, okay, this is largely the same team upgraded with some veteran transfers and look at how quickly they were able to flip it overnight. And I think that would, that would buy some trust going forward. Still would have a lot to prove and, you know, still would, would need to elevate their recruiting and, you know, keep up the pace they've been at in terms of getting guys on board but start to target a, you know, more and more talented prospects as the classes go on and, and see what they can build from there. But um, I I do think that people generally feel like, you know, they inherited a roster that's a lot more talented than a four and eight record would have indicated last year. Do, do Washington fans view a grad transfer winning the starting quarterback job over a five-star recruit as a good thing or as a, we need to start sounding all the alarms because in Oregon, 
you know, this is year year two in a row where we've had Ty Thompson in a battle with a transfer quarterback, and it's the fact that Ty Thompson hasn't won the job yet has people already saying he's a bust, that Oregon can't recruit, all these sorts of things. Like, how how is that similar situation viewed up in uh, Seattle? There are some parallels there for sure. It's always hard to say, you know, what what percentage of the fan population is is represented by those the loudest opinions that you see on Twitter. <laughs> Certainly, there are a lot of people who, you know, would have would have just celebrated like crazy if they'd said Sam Heward was the starter. I think probably the majority of fans understand that you you don't go recruit a fifth year transfer who has experience with that, the current head coach, you know, where there's a connection and add him to the roster. If you don't think that that's going to be the guy. And I think most people trust that, you know, Caitlin DeVore and Ryan Grubb are, they, they want to win and they want to play the best quarterback. And I think that maybe there's, there's more disappointment that that didn't turn out to be Sam Heward. You know, that's probably like the, the most balanced, like rational way to look at it where I think people understand like, okay, I've, I'm glad they went out and got Mike Penix because, you know, if I believe that he's better than what they had, if he won the job, but I, boy, I sure wish it it had been Sam Heward. I think there's some people who, who kind of straddle that fence a little bit. How how much do you think Oregon and Washington are uh, joined with each other for, for whatever future they may have? I mean, not to the extent that either one, wouldn't act yeah you know on on its own if it if it benefited them i think that's the case for every school but it sure seems like the big 10 would be more likely to take them in tandem than not right like there's as much talk as there's been about a potential like west coast wing where it's washington oregon stanford and cal you know if the conference goes to like 20 plus um you know i don't know if if notre dame pulls the trigger and and wants to join and you're only looking for one school to join with them to make it, you know, to even it out. Is it either Oregon or Washington? You know, I, th- I feel, I feel like it would be such like uh and obviously I'm not in on these discussions, but like if you're trying to create this conference and to like, at least have like even some semblance of like, this makes sense for PR purposes. Like I, I feel like you have to bring in a pair together, especially that has like some sort of natural rivalry with each other. Just uh just so it's not, you know, USC and UCLA, obviously they're very far removed from the Big Ten footprint. Uh, but if you just happen to bring just Oregon in in the Northwest, like that would just, I don't know. I, I think it'd be absurd, but but that's kind of the game we're playing these days. Well, plus bringing in Oregon and Washington together would allow them to like create some sort of um, inanimate object as a trophy for those two to play for. <laughs> they would have to, right? Yeah. Oh man, that could be. Eh, granted, if if I if I was still at my old job, that that could have been a nice November post for us. <laughs> so so so, did you guys just start like? Is it uh, like you guys start like hazing Antonio like when you're putting together like the Pac-12 <laughs> roundtables now? Like just you know, the kind of lame lame duck Pac-12 rep Pac-12 roundtable representative. Yeah, I've been thinking like, not the 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 remaining Pac-12 contingent is getting kind of thin. For, for a bunch of different reasons. USC floating off and Kamrani's been been out uh eating mushrooms with Jake Plummer and <laughs> Yeah, I, I saw that. 
it, it's funny seeing a byline. I mean, sorry, seeing a headline on a story than being like, I bet you Kamrani wrote that before yeah. before even seeing the byline on there. I thought I thought he did a good job on that one. Yeah, that was a great. I enjoyed it. Uh oh. Okay, so here here's a here's a good question for you. Uh, Ichiro is going to the Mariners Hall of Fame on Saturday. He is. Was that post your era of of Mariners fandom, or was that like right in the right in the heart? Oh no, I mean that was that 2001 season. I was 14, so I was 14, and you know 1995 happened when I was eight when I turned eight years old, and I was, that's you know those are still some of the, like literally the best memories of my entire life, like sports or not. And then they won the West and made the playoffs again in '97 when I'm 10. Then when I'm 14, they got the best record in baseball. And the year before, they they made the wild card and won a series and took New York to six games. This is only going to get better, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, like, <laughs> man, like I understand because you know, like in that '95, my dad's telling me all about you know how the miserable history of the franchise, and that was kind of my first full year, like really understanding the game and really following the game closely and like caring a lot about it. So I understood that like 95 marked sort of the end of the end of the, 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 the drought there and 19 right. long years of frustration is over as, as Dave said. Um, so yeah, I was, I was kind of coming to expect the, the playoffs more often than not. Cause that's how that period of my life had been eight, 10, 13, 14. They're in the playoffs. And, uh, and and Safeco was bringing in like three point five mil- million per season or something like ridiculous like that. Like like I think it was like the two thousand one, two and three seasons they like were setting like American League attendance records. Like it, it it's, it's yeah, so, and that it's so crazy to think of like how far that's fallen in the, in twenty years. And that two thousand one season was just ridiculous. Like they bring over Ichiro who's instantly a, a superstar rookie here and MVP Brett Boone hit 40 some homers. Their starting rotation did not miss a start all year. They're what they have nine all-stars yeah, and could have had 10, like didn't Cal Ripken jr. Beat out David bell at third base on like the last day of voting or something like that. Which, so, which, which was probably the right call. Like, for yeah, this <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then he doesn't get to hit the homer because yeah. Oh, oh, and by the way, they host the All Star Game. They host the All Star Game. It has an iconic moment. <laughs> so it was just it was just this like, are you kidding me? Like, is this even real type of season? So yeah, that was, I I, I you know once I went off to college probably, and and the fact that they didn't continue winning at that anywhere near that level, I it's not like I I stopped following them or or caring at all, but I. I definitely wasn't paying as close of attention. And then my junior, my summer between my junior and senior year in college, I, I had an internship for MLB covering them. And so my, my mental, that was the way I looked at, <laughs> looked at things kind of, kind of had to change a little bit. I, uh, I, I might still end up doing this if I have the time, but like, I think a great uh, oral history would be just like talking to a bunch of dudes who played for the Mariners the last 20 years, like, like a Jose Lopez esque, of just like, like tell tell me like the shittiest baseball stories you had in Seattle of just like Mariners ineptitude, of uh, of the last like just trying to think of like who would be perfect like like a Russell Brannion, like like why the hell was Russell Brannion playing baseball in Seattle twice? He came back once. You lead them in homers. I think so. One year, yeah. You could yeah, hammer. It's, it's 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 when like uh when 
I think he hit probably like 32 home runs and everyone's like, oh my God, like offensive charge in Seattle. Well, Richie Sexton had the, wasn't, wasn't, was it 2008 when they lost, lost a hundred with a hundred million dollar payroll? Yep. I think that was the year that after a game, Bill Bavese like took all the towels out of the clubhouse or something and like made them sit at their locker instead of shower. And I, I don't think that went over real well with the pool. So that'd be maybe be interesting to hear from some guys about about that afternoon. I, I forget I forget which bar it was, but I know there was a uh, like a Richie Sexton batting average night, uh, where uh, beer prices were whatever his his batting average was on the season, which I yeah. think for a lot of his tenure was hovering around like two eleven or so. The old uh, Dave Valley. There was some bar in Fremont that did that. I forget which one it was. God, they're bad. It, it, it's weird watching them be good now, too, and then also seeing like a little bit of like the younger Mariners kind of online Twitter fandom and like how it's not just perennially like depressed people who know this is going to like the rug's going to be pulled out of them at one point. Like, like what's like, like, is there, is there any uh, like electricity in the air because like there's actually a decent baseball team or is it still pretty quiet up there? No, I think there is. I think there is. And I think the crowds have reflected that. Yeah. It seems like, especially weekend games, it really feels like they're playing big time baseball again. You know, there's the people get on their feet for, for two strike counts and stuff. And you kind of start to see like, okay, this is, yeah, that's right. That's what it looks like this time of year when, when the playoffs are a possibility and, and people are feeling and like, I think Julio Rodriguez is a huge part of that. Too. He, he, I mean, he's got the potential to be like the biggest star in Seattle, right? Especially with like Russell gone. We've talked about this. I, I think he clearly is. Yeah. I mean, I think he like he's already there, especially like with Subert retiring. Um, I think he he kind of becomes the the face of of Seattle sports for the immediate it's, future. It was kind of perfectly timed with like the All Star Game thing too. Like it was it was just crazy seeing a guy do that during the home run derby, like while wearing a Seattle Jersey. Like it was just like this, this doesn't usually go hand in hand. <laughs> no. And I, it felt, I mean, it just felt like one of those events that people are going to remember for a really long time. Like you think about Griffey's legacy and his ascension toward like super duper stardom in major league baseball. And you, you think about the warehouse at Camden Yards and the, the home run derby. Yeah, and just like how good he was in home run derbies generally, and even though Julio didn't win, like that honestly, like might be a it might turn into a trivia question. You know, the fact like, oh, by the way, like, like Juan, Juan Soto won the home it's, run it's, derby. It's kind of like like who did who did the U.S. beat in the gold medal game of nineteen eighty? Yeah. Uh, so you know, it, I think that I think that'll be one of those one of those like making of Julio moments for sure. I, I think there could be a good story talking to uh, like people like Larry Stone or even like Rick Riz of guys who were like, you know, like the Seattle media core and like the Mariners in general do have some people who were there still for kind of like the infant stages of like the first go around with superstardom and playoff and stuff. And just, you know, what sort of echoes there are here with Julio and, and how this thing's being put to obviously, you know, it's a different situation and, and different players, but uh like Larry Stone's seen some baseball, man. <laughs> he has. Like, 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 just thinking about those guys and like the amount of I, I think about this with like Rick Riz all the time. Like, just the amount of meaningless baseball games that dude has called in his life. Like, I'm just happy that he gets to cover something semi interesting for a change. Yeah, it's and I, like I, I definitely feel that way about and 
not that not that this is what like anybody should care or think about but because it's what we do it's the industry we're in like i do think about like the, you know the people who covered this team for a really long time like and obviously like the winning versus losing has nothing to do with it it's just being able to like write some stories that are um of broader interest because the team is performing well and writing about something that that has some energy around it and that people are paying attention to like it's definitely a, a different experience. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right. We'll see you. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor. Hosted.